I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. How often do you find yourself thinking about the color of your own skin? Or the skin color of your friends and colleagues? The barista at the coffee shop down the street, or the employee helping you at the hardware store? Skin color is, of course, real. I see about seven different shades of it at my Armenian family reunions. But what we call race, the ways in which we categorize and limit people based solely on how they appear, that's a fiction. So what do we do about it? Are we stuck with this falsehood forever? Our guest this week certainly doesn't think so. Anaya Folarin Iman is a writer, social and political commentator, and campaigner. She is the founder and director of the Equiano Project, a discussion and ideas forum which promotes freedom of speech and universalism on issues of race, culture, and politics. Anaya sits on the board of directors of the Free Speech Union and is a columnist for Spiked Magazine. She writes and speaks on big-picture issues of freedom, democracy, identity politics, and human potential. Anaya, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me. So let's just jump right into it. You've made a name for yourself in the public eye for, I guess you could say, a few reasons. As a free speech campaigner, founder of the Equiano Project, and perhaps most controversially, and I'm using heavy scare quotes <laughs> around the word controversially, for your advocacy of something you call race transcendence. So for those who may not be familiar with that concept, what does it mean to transcend race? Yes. Yeah, so I think, um, I think I kind of almost accidentally came to the kind of concept of, of race transcendence or race abolition. But obviously, you know, as someone who is, is racialized as, as black, um, and this is something that, you know, has happened since birth, I didn't actually realize that this concept of, of race, uh, the idea that, you know, human beings can be divided into biologically distinct subcategories was actually um, essentially um, a, a concept that had developed under very particular social and historical circumstances. And I think that that, that that's um, in some senses the kind of uh, the, the problem of the concept of race. I mean, we, we look at each other and see that, oh, we have different hair types or skin colours, and we can uh, mistakenly think that um, those differences have some more profound or, or fundamental meaning, but actually, um, both biologically and socially, um, race it, it is not actually a, a kind of distinct category. So, for example, I think, you know, African-Americans, for example, have something like a 30% on average European ancestry. And, you know, for, from people in Somalia to, to people in uh, Aboriginal Australia to people in Nigeria are all racialized um, as black. And so um, essentially um, the, the kind of concept of racism or, or the kind of act of racism emerged out of instilling race um, with both meaning that is being um, positive or negative and um, people that are not racialized as um, white were kind of seen as uh, subhuman or inferior. And so um, although racism, generally speaking, has kind of massively, massively gone down as is now deeply socially taboo, the kind of concept of race that underpinned racism still very much persists. And I think um, in order to really get to a society that we essentially are all, all hoping for, where we are, as the phrase goes, judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin, I think that both, both racism and the concept of race itself um, must be transcended. Yeah, there's this famous, I can't remember who, who said this particular phrase, but we've already transcended color when it comes to hair. If you really break it down, the way that we 
kind of delineate people into different groups based on superficial appearances. If you take any other superficial appearance, whether it's eye color or hair color alone, it, it just becomes absolutely absurd. But it's interesting how, I guess, for understandable and tragic historical reasons, we are making that same categorical error when it comes to skin color that we don't make when it comes to, say, eye color or hair color. No, exactly. And I think um, for a lot of people, um, yeah, race has now because of um, the process of racialization over historical time, um, ha has developed into something uh, more socially important. So we hear things like kind of black culture and black music. And so there are other things now that have come to um, fill race um, with much more uh, meaning. And I think um, some people, I guess, are, are resistant to transcending race as they may, um, what I would regard as wrongfully, assume that um, by... Um, by recognizing and, and uh, essentially um, distancing oneself from racialization, that would mean that we have to also abandon um, the things that uh, have come to bind people um, through that racialized category. Um, but, but I don't think that is the case. I, I actually think um, one can come to appreciate um, the, the kind of beauty of for example, that the origins of jazz as, as part of the complexity of the human story, it does not necessarily have to be siloed into a kind of racial boundary. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, I want to put a tiny little pin in that because we are going to come back to the idea of quote unquote black culture and, and what that means and what those silos do to us. Um, but before we do get to that, I want to just continue to kind of set the scene. In the film industry, where, where I work, we often uh, reference a storytelling device known as the, quote, inciting incident, right? It's the moment in the script when everything changed for the protagonist, right? The dividing line between the way things were and the way things are now going to be, right? Usually happens around the first act of a script. You speak about the moment you became racially conscious in your excellent essay, we can't just oppose racism, we must transcend race. Mm. But what was the inciting incident for your current views on race transcendence? With everything society tells us about the nature of racial identity, it's not necessarily a conclusion that someone can come to naturally. Yeah, so I think um, I've always uh, been quite fluid uh, with my kind of conception of race. I never um, necessarily enabled it to really become so powerful in my um, conception of self. So I, I was never necessarily a kind of black radical or anything like that. But I, I, I kind of delved into it and I could appreciate the, the kind of binds and sense of belonging and solidarity that many people felt that it gave them. But it was really, um, yeah, the emergence of, of Black Lives Matter, um, which essentially catapulted the concept of transcending race um, far more stronger in, into my consciousness. I think, um, yeah, so uh, the, the organization, the movement, um, sought to kind of speak on behalf of, um, uh, the, you know, black people. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, black Americans. There was a kind of, uh, universal or kind of homogenous, um, black identity that was essentialized, um, to be one of racism, oppression and victimhood. And, um, I found that, uh, this, this was an almost new form of essentialization, a new form of reification where people, um, you know, anytime a black person was spoken about or blackness was talked about, it was always in, in, in relation to some form of disadvantage. And I, I began to really worry about what that um, new form of racialization or, or uh, racial essentialism would do to a young generation, particularly in the UK, but I think also in America, growing up, living in a society that has 
made profound levels of progress when it comes to uh, creating a more fairer society in relation to race. And so, so seeing this um, emergence from um, from the top down, but also the bottom up of this kind of new form of essentialization, really made me question um, whether. Um, you know the the concept of of blackness and and race was now becoming um, a new bind, but not from the kind of traditional racists, but the people often um, arguing to um, for anti-racism. And so it was through that kind of questioning of this new um, essentialization that I um, delved much deeper into the origins of race and and the kind of yeah the the, the negative effects that racialization can have on a person. Yeah, speaking on. And speaking to someone from another country uh, and appreciating how the kind of cultural export of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is uh, in many ways like a distinctly American cultural phenomenon that has exported itself to nations that actually some of them, I I saw like a humongous Black Lives Matter march in Finland. But one part of, of BLM that I find very troubling, and you kind of spoke on this just now, is in many ways, it's, it's, it's largely antithetical to the civil rights movement in a, in a very key sort of way. I feel like in the past, uh, the, the kind of traditional racist, as you called them, viewed black people, or I guess you could, you could say any non-white person, they would view them as objects, right? Not as subjects. Mm. Something that, that doesn't have agency, something that we talk about, not talk with, something that we look at as, as a thing that doesn't really have full control over their own life, right? Mm. Um, and a key motivating narrative of the civil rights movement was black people speaking of themselves and about themselves as subjects, right? Of masters of their own destiny, of captains of their soul, to quote that famous poem. And I fear that with the BLM movement, I I fear that it's risking talking about and treating black Americans, black Britons, black people everywhere, again, treating them as objects rather than subjects, but through a different lens, through perhaps a lens of pity it's just, I find it very disturbing. Is that something that you've witnessed over there as well? Oh, yes. It's, it's a deeply um, demoralizing and, and disempowering message that is um, <clears throat> that is propelled by uh, this, this, this movement that, um, yeah, that, that black people are essentially, you know, passive recipients of kind of, yeah, oppression and, and, and kind of racism and, and have no... Um, sense of agency no no ability to define their own destiny and and shape the world around them and i think um yeah it's a very it, it kind of encourages a sense of grievance and victimhood not the kind of concoction that empowers people enables them to kind of take um on the world and and, and i think that as i said earlier that was very much part of what really made me me question seeing those effects you know so telling people that the, the cards are stacked against them that um society um structurally institutionally systemically it is racist and kind of designed to exclude you from society and keep you away i think um these are all of the the this is all of the the recipes essentially to build up resentment and build up a kind of sense of alienation and that is not the kind of uh, emotional or psychological state um where uh, progress um, emerges from to give our American or I suppose uh, non-British listeners some additional context, I want to make sure I'm not, as an American, colonizing, to use a word, uh, <laughs> the, the term of what it means to be black or what black culture is. So what does it mean to be black in the UK? Because in, in America, it has a very specific cultural you know, significance, meaning 
rooted in a tragic history of slavery and exclusion. So to be black here in the States isn't just to denote one's skin color, but to claim a culture that was formed here, interwoven with American history, because you're unable to claim an ancestral history, right? Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon in the age of 23 and me for a lot of black Americans to discover for the first time what their actual genetic heritage is. So when we say black here, it, it at least has, in the context of black Americans, it's almost in a way of what we mean by Jewish in that it denotes both an ethnic and cultural identity and the two are kind of interlinked. Mm. But what does it mean to be black in Britain? Yeah, so um, yeah, what you said is very fascinating and, and, and I think, yes, it's very much true. And I think that is, um, as you alluded to earlier, some of the kind of really dangerous um, aspects of importing um, the American kind of uh, racial uh, reality to Britain. Um, so as you alluded to, you know, um, African-American, generally speaking, have a relatively uh, unified national story um, rooted in, you know, the started with the kind of transatlantic slavery and all of the things that emerged from that. That is fundamentally, really fundamentally different to um, the, the situation in, in Britain. Um, the, the kind of British black sort story, so to speak, is is one of, of diversity and heterogeneity. Um, so, of course, there are kind of links to um, Britain that go back hundreds of years in relation to kind of colonialism and to a, a lesser extent slavery. But uh, most uh, black people or people that are racialized as black, at least, in Britain really came here in the post-war years. So we had... Um, uh, immigrants from the kind of Caribbean during something that's called the Windrush that, that was pretty much really in the in kind of that yeah the, immediately after uh, World War Two and many of them came um, to kind of rebuild Britain um, after World War Two and then many of them felt very British um, they were British subjects they their identity was um, um, intertwined with Britain essentially Britain invented modern Jamaica um, hundreds of years ago and so many of the, the the kind of Jamaican immigrants that came at that time were very very patriotic um, and and integrated deeply into British society. And then the next wave was really, you know, um, in the 90s, so very, very recently, uh, particularly uh, middle class, but um, also some working class migrants from from um, West Africa, so kind of Ghana and Nigeria. Um, and, and so, um, and, and many of, so I think something like a more than half of um, black African people living in Britain uh, were actually born abroad. So we're talking about a really relatively uh, new population of of people. And actually black identity is really interesting in Britain, um, was actually used to describe people that were not just non-white. And it was only very recently, again, that um, black had become something to describe people of Afro-Caribbean heritage. And so, yeah, there's there's many kind of um, differences in terms of why people came to Britain, how they came to Britain, and their levels of kind of integration and social mobility. But um, it's always been, the the story in Britain indeed has been um, a a story that has racial prejudice and discrimination has definitely played a part, but a kind of integration and a kind of uh, a mixing um, in Britain has also been a a really big aspect. And a a few statistics is, um, for example, a black Jamaican man in London is more likely to... um, be with a white woman and, and have kids with um, a white woman than a, a kind of Jamaican woman. And the, and the fastest growing ethnic group in Britain is actually um, black, white, mixed race people. So there's there's a very different historical, and cultural and social story about black identity in Britain. The, the Windrush generation you're talking about and how they feel very distinctly British. Um, I wonder if that's tied to specifically the generation that they 
I, I imagine it's specifically tied to the generation they came over with. I know you're familiar with Catherine Burblesing, yes. uh, who you've had as a guest on the uh, Equiano Project. And she's kind of on the forefront of this idea in U- UK education, the idea that teaching children of all backgrounds to see themselves as fully British, right? As descendants and inheritors of British culture, traditions, values. And this seems to me like the best and most obvious way to create a harmonious multiracial society, right? To raise generations of children who may not look quote unquote, historically British, but feel as deep a pride in their country um, as anyone else. And, and it also, I feel like it helps to stunt feelings of xenophobia in those who are worried about having their quote unquote culture erased. Because I do feel that a not insignificant driver of, of xenophobic feelings is not necessarily fear of appearance, but it's fear of simple difference. Mm. And that minimizing our differences feels like the easiest path, right? Towards a, a well-functioning multiracial society. Can you speak on that? Yes, no, I, I would completely agree with that. I think um, it's been a, a, a another significant departure, this kind of recent emergence of the kind of celebration of difference or the, the emphasis on how we differ and this kind of recognition of difference, which I actually think it, you know, it can affirm people in the moment, but in the long term can increase a sense of alienation that because really we're not that different, or at least it's not clear to me that um, our difference is any more um, of a difference between myself and another person. Why should our racial identity or racial category be the thing that is celebrated or or affirmed i think um, a kind of civic nationalism a pride in a national identity is something that actually transcends and um, parochial racial ethnic or whatever other um kind of more immediate identities and i think that's something that we can all hold on to and something that we can all um yeah share in that kind of process of being part of this nation what you know one democracy as citizens i think that's something that is much more um, powerful than this kind of retreat um into identity and i think in britain there is this movement so-called decolonize the curriculum which argues for the kind of increasing um, amount of uh uh, people of other races in in the curriculum, and there's no evidence or research or anything to demonstrate that um you know building you should teachers should be building identity through through the curriculum or that um people should necessarily have to see themselves exactly reflected in all aspects. I think that's not the purpose of education. Um, it, it's for the pursuit of knowledge and to kind of expose yourself to different types of people. And so I think yeah, I think that this emphasis on on difference um, is actually more alienating um, than than just sharing in a kind of national heritage. But one more point, um, in, in Britain, you know, unfortunately, and this is something that is causing a lot of difficulty, but we, we will have to work on is that there's always been a kind of a cultural distaste to any form of patriotism or civic nationalism. The elites, um, even you know, going back to empire, um, always saw themselves as kind of beyond the nation, and and so you know, at the end of empire, this kind of uh, Britishness and and what that meant and how to really align with that has still been very uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I think um, I think that's something in Britain we're going to have to really contend with. Yeah, I think that gets to the dichotomy of the glory versus gory narratives of how we teach our own histories, right? Mm -hmm. It's about striking a balance between acknowledging the horrific things that all nation states at one point in their history, however long that may be. (laughs) And the UK is, is understandably a much more historied place than, than the rather young America, but Mm -hmm. our countries have both, you know, as, as states done pretty terrible things. But in terms of the narratives that you teach children, 
I mean, even circling back to what you said about that, that concept of needing to see yourself in the people you learn about on its face. And there are elements of it I do understand, right? Like you don't want to go the other way, which has happened historically where you erase people from history because of the racism of the people making the textbooks. But I almost also feel like if we continue to emphasize difference, right? I'm, I'm trying to think of, a, of an American history anyway, where let's say all white, quote unquote, white European immigrants upon the moment of arrival, they just heard endlessly, oh, hey, you Irish immigrant and you Italian immigrant, you are so incredibly different. You have nothing in common. You could not be more different from one another if you ever tried. I mean, I'm trying to think as a son of a multi-ethnic marriage, uh, the son of an Armenian mother and a you know European father, like had they been inculcated with that belief for generations, I wonder if I would even exist. You know, so I wonder when we talk about, quote unquote, seeing yourself in someone else to be able to believe in yourself, what does, I'm trying to think if that does damage to the very concept of interracial relationships and marriages and the children of those marriages who oftentimes don't, quote unquote, see themselves in either half of their family because they are something uniquely new. Yes, no, I, I think, um, yeah, and I think that the examples you gave and how you described that is really um, you know, beautiful and eloquent. I think, I agree. I think, um, yeah, it, it kind of, um, yeah, stunts that process of actually, yeah, cultivating and creating new, new forms of uh, representation and, and kind of recognition in, in oneself. But I also think, I also think, you know, the problem with it as, as, as well, which kind of links to the point that you've just described, I think it's this kind of, um, where, where does kind of self-study or self-education um, come into it and a kind of personal um, cultivation of your own sense of self? I think I, I, I am I'm of Yoruba heritage, which is a, a, one of the larger ethnic groups in Nigeria. And um, obviously, you know, as it's a different country and society, I didn't learn much about it growing up. And so um, I, I chose to, during my university years, to pursue um, a, a deeper uh, dive into kind of uh, Nigerian and, and Yoruba history and, and religious systems and culture. And that really helped me to kind of feel a sense of rootedness and understanding on, on how I came to be the person that I am. And that was a very personal and inspiring journey. And I think, um, yeah, this, this idea that, um, you know, the schooling system, for example, is the place where you um, create your sense of self through the curriculum, I think is a very uh, bizarre and divorced one from what actually happens. But also, yeah, I think, um, I think that, emphasizing as I said difference is just not really um the answer a lot of the time when you come into contact with someone that might you might perceive of as different you find that um when you find something you have in common all of those boundaries disappear and so yeah I think um I think it's very wrong-headed um this approach I think that was really beautiful what you said about how so much of, of how we discover our own identities right mm -hmm. like what it for me what it quote unquote means to be Armenian, although my, my ancestors came over here about 100 years ago after the genocide. But moving to LA was, was quite, a, quite a culture shock because there are many recent Armenian immigrants here. And although we are the same on paper, um, my experiences of, of my own ethnicity are so distinctly different from theirs. And it caused me to grapple with issues of identity that I had not even considered when I grew up in a, a small suburban town where I think my mom, my sister, and I were the only people of, of ethnic Armenian heritage. But you're absolutely right. It really is a journey that one must go on by themselves. And it is a bit egotistical, I think, for the state or the school to believe that it's their duty or their job 
um, rather than, let's say, the parents or relatives or even the, the child's own self Agreed. to discover what their identity means to them. Yes, no. But on the issue of identity, I, I kind of want to take us to um, a topic that I think is kind of two sides of the same coin, and I, I'd love to get your thoughts. First, I, I would say this issue is, I guess you could say, race adjacent. Um, that's specific to your side of the pond. So how can we expand identities, which I guess in, this, in your case would be English or British, that were once very closely tied to specific hyper-localized groups like English, Welsh, without kind of exploding a category while it's being expanded, right? To put it another way, historically, ethnic identities exist because the boundaries are guarded, right? The French are in France because France has boundaries, right? You are not an X because you are a Y. So you are from this tribe, so you cannot be from this tribe. So while we have a myriad of issues here in the US, this conundrum seems specific to your side of the Atlantic because American is a marker of citizenship, not ethnicity. Whereas English, British, like Chinese, Korean, Armenian, Russian, these can be both, right? They can be both ethnic identities and recently also civic ones. And I, I feel like there's a tension that can form when immigrants move into those once homogenous populations. And I, I want to be clear here, I use homogenous relatively because many countries, including Britain, have long been multi-ethnic. But it feels like there's a tension there that feels palpable um, in the UK that just can't simply exist here. So in that way, race transcendence in Britain also feels very much tied up with a sort of ethnicity transcendence. And how is that navigated? Yeah, I think, um, I think again, I think in Britain, we've come a massively long way. So I think, um, you know, a few decades ago, Britishness uh, was conceived of essentially along ethnic and racial lines. But I would say by and large, that has been... Um, dismantled that that particular conception i think um as obviously now britishness is expressed in democratic and civic institutions and um, that anyone who is a british citizen can participate in i think that does generally work re relatively well and so i think um, yeah a kind of uh, a, a democracy or, or a sense of a um, democratic um uh, civic uh, um, citizenship i think is a way to kind of uh, um, encapsulate um, an identity that doesn't necessarily have to be along um, any kind of ethnic lines. I think there is still a kind of, uh, yeah, a residual tension there in relation to Englishness, especially as um, in Britain, there's been a kind of uh, increased emergence of kind of Scottish nationalism. Um, and so um, the kind of tension between the different uh, parts of, of um, Britain ha um, has kind of emerged more powerfully. And so that has created greater conversations about what it, what does it mean to be English and, you know, yeah, what is Englishness? Um, and so I think I think that is still an ongoing conversation. I think personally for me, um, I, I've generally regarded Englishness um, as an ethnic identity. Um, and so I often consider myself as a British Nigerian or a British person, um, even though I'm obviously born, raised and, and live in England. And so I, I'm a, I think um, it's okay. I, I, people that are of English heritage, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with them um, having that, expressing that um, and uh, participating in celebrations or, or days that uh, affirm that particular um, uh, heritage. I think that's um, fine. But Britishness, I would say is definitely one that is not necessarily tied to ethnic or racial um, categories anymore. And so I think because it 
can be expressed in particular institutions. It enables it to be one that um, can be can include more people, and, and I think the boundaries of that um, are quite uh, clear in regards to obviously the, the kind of nation state of Britain. But also, unfortunately, in recent years, people have been attempting to kind of expand the franchise of, of Britishness anti-democratically for example during the the kind of brexit referendum and the campaign to have a second referendum um people wanted to include anyone that lived here if they were even european citizen had a european citizenship or not i think um, i think we've got to protect the concept of british citizenship um, but definitely not tie it to ethnic or racial um categories as a quick sidebar here and this is because this is something that i've been struggling with on my side of the pond, I suppose you could say, is when we talk about American culture or when we talk about British culture, there seems to be a kind of a tug of war happening between the left and the right, um, I think on both sides to kind of define what those things mean. And I think that it's rather slippery, isn't it? Because I, I, if I'm recalling correctly, there was a BBC ad like a, or a public service announcement a few years ago. I think it was the BBC. I don't fact check me, but it was a two minute video, I think, where it was talking about British culture and it was like, you know, so-and-so likes football and then so-and-so likes fish and chips and all these other things. And there were folks on, I think the right who were like, British culture is more than that. It's, it's deeper than that. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to that reaction, right? Because it, you don't want to boil down cultures simply just to food or music or what you watch on the telly. But there is, I feel like, an, and, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I do feel like there's an undercurrent there where if you scratch the surface and you ask someone, okay, well, if culture isn't just food, music you listen to, the jokes that you make, the inside references you have, if it actually is more than that, what is it? And I, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I just feel like people talk about quote unquote American culture or British culture as like a homogenous thing sometimes in reaction to what anti-racist activists or what the woke culture says when they're trying to dismantle it. But can you maybe speak a little bit on what, what British culture is or how we wrap our, how we wrap our arms around something that feels so slippery? Yeah, I think, um, I think culture has always been relatively fluid and ever evolving, but I think it's a collection of all of those things. It's, you know, the art, the kind of customs, the institutions, the traditions, um, and, and, and the people, the history, all of those things kind of, uh, meshed together and, and the kind of trends and, um, yeah, similarities that one associates with that particular area. And I think for, for British culture, again, this is another one that is, um, uh, that Britain is definitely grappling with as, um, particularly the political elites, but to a lesser extent, the kind of media and cultural elites have, have lost faith in, um, in, you know what Britishness means, or, or or Western society more broadly, and have not necessarily led the way in um, enabling something for British people in general to all get behind. So there's a massive kind of moral and political vacuum that would be essentially shaping that process of a kind of a more unified conception of what those things are. But I would say um, a few things for me resonate with. Um, um, Britishness when I think about it I think you know I do think parliamentary democracy um, and, and yeah so that the kind of democratic institutions that were birthed and are somewhat unique relatively to Britain and the, and the kind of age-old history associated with that I think um, definitely the kind of um, tradition of, of liberty um, you know it going back to kind of, you know, the Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights and then John Stuart Mill, Aria Pagitica, I think there's a, a very strong 
um, tradition of kind of liberty in Britain, which unfortunately, again, has actually been massively eroded um, in the last um, 10 and, and 20 years. I think, yeah, that the culture of kind of politeness and etiquette, um, which is, you know, highly prized. And it's always interesting when I go to other countries and they always say, you know, why do you say sorry so much? Why do you say thank you? <laughs> so I think, and I think these are the kinds of things that um, are quite uh, unique to Britain, um, or at least, uh, I guess, give give a sense of Britishness. And obviously, on top of that, the kind of um, the institutions of monarchy, even though I'm actually a Republican, funnily enough, but I recognise that um, for a lot of British people, that kind of uh, gives them a sense of uh, a kind of continuity. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think there is something in there. Um, but again, you know, in the last few decades, we've had something called multiculturalism as a, not just the kind of experience of being around different cultures, but actually um, it was a public policy to kind of categorise people into different cultures and, and seeking to manage those cultures where they were all essentially on a level playing field. So that was a massive challenge to a kind of shared Britishness in favour of a kind of a cultural moral relativism, which is actually doing a lot of damage in, in Britain right now. So yeah, I do think there are things that one can uh, pinpoint to uh, create a shared sense of Britishness. But there are several regressive forces at the moment that are, are tugging away at that quite significantly. Yes, I, I think that, again, I think it comes down to when with, with something like multiculturalism, it would be so much simpler to just frame that as more inclusive Britishness, right? I feel like so much of this is just about messaging. As in multiculturalism, I, I imagine, comes from mostly a good place in that you don't want to make someone feel unwelcome in your own country, but it's also a kind of, in a way, segregation because it's saying, well, this culture's over here and this culture's over here rather than, you know, when you come to our country, of course, we're not asking you to set aside all of the, the wonderful culture and foods and, and, uh, and, you know, language even that you're bringing with you, but you are going to become British, maybe not in the first generation, but your child is going to grow up in a British country and they're going to go to British schools and and that's a message that seems so much more unifying, not just to the people who are coming in by saying that you will become a fully fledged member of our society and our and our I was about to say republic, mm -hmm. um, but uh, of our society and, and our government and your children even more so and your grandchildren even more so. It just feels like that's such a better message to send. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, as I said before, I am a British Nigerian, but I, I see absolutely no contradiction in those um, identities. And I think, yeah, I think multiculturalism essentially says that you have to choose. Um, and, and I think, um, and, but if you do choose your perhaps uh, more, your, your, your Nigerianness, for example, then that has a very specific meaning. I mean, you will be kind of categorized and kind of, yeah, homogenized into that um, silo and you'd be expected to, you know, be around other people that have that and you'll have all of those kinds of things. I see no contradiction. You know, I, I think I can feel completely at home and, and belong here whilst also recognizing that um, I, I how I came to be here may have been slightly different to perhaps native Brits or or, or um, I may have other um, elements of my identity and personality that um, that um, uh, represent um, a different cultural heritage. And so yeah, I think yeah with multiculturalism it's been very dangerous in Britain actually. And again I don't I don't know um, the specificities of 
um, how it play if what it's like in America. But um, in, in regards to Britain, we have a situation where we have often parallel societies, and and there's a lot of tension and conflict that ends up happening in particular neighbourhoods because people are not encouraged to to communicate. They're not encouraged to see each other um, pass a kind of cultural um, boundary. And it has produced a lot of um, negative effects, and and oftentimes it's produced the worst effects for for people that are um, um, from other cultures, so to speak. So, for example, you know, if you're a kind of uh, a gay uh, Muslim Pakistani, um, you'll be considered less authentic than a kind of conservative traditional uh, Muslim um, Pakistani man. And 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 oftentimes, yeah, we we see often we have these kind of self-appointed community leaders that often speak on behalf of um entire you know religious or um, cultural communities. And oftentimes, yeah, to to not. For example, if you don't fully speak English or or um, if you don't understand democracy, then you're not able to fully participate um, in British life. And so that often ends up harming the people that it is meant to help. But I would agree with you that a lot of the time it was done on, on good intentions. But I think, um, yeah, of course, we have to interrogate um, any kind of attempt to to put people in boxes. Yeah, wonderfully said. And I could I could just keep going down these garden paths with you, but I I I've really enjoyed it. But I do want to make sure that we give the the devil his due uh, on the other side of this coin when it comes to things like I think what you've called ARAs, anti-racist uh, activists, um, or people who subscribe to critical race theory. I think it is in some ways a, 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 the other side of um, the kind of I guess reactionary right you could say. So I, I just want to briefly touch on this and get your thoughts. In an essay for Black Lives Matter UK, an anthology, which, by the way, is something I recommend everyone take a look at. I'll put it in the show notes. You wrote about anti-racist activists. You wrote, quote, they insinuate that ethnic minorities must be a homogenous monolithic group where diversity of opinion is not allowed or that if you veer away from a narrow script, you will be publicly shamed, end quote. And I do wonder, based on my own time in these circles, uh, as painful as it was, if a lot of this is driven by a certain kind of pain. And I, I don't want to excuse the ugly words of the of the people you were specifically talking about there, or the way that they smear those who don't have the quote unquote right opinions, because the, some of the things that you even quoted in that essay were truly ugly. But while the prescriptions of critical race theory, the, the prescriptions that that ideology, I suppose you could call it, offers, are often deeply toxic, right, and results in that kind of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I learned through personal experience that this ideology can be attractive because it provides affirmation and recognition to those who feel profoundly and often, I would say, rightly aggrieved, right? And it gives their, quote, race, meaning and value. So when we seek to move beyond race, a goal I 100% endorse, how can we get buy-in from people who are struggling with the pain of being racialized, right? And, and I think that some of the lashing out, some of the terrible things that some of these folks are saying about even people like you, I, I do feel that it can, is coming from somewhere painful if I, if I was trying to empathize with them. So how do we convince them that abolishing race is better than just acknowledging it? Well, I think, you know, we have to understand, you know, where that pain comes from. And as you kind of alluded to, it, it's from, I guess, perhaps the pain of being racialized. And therefore, you know, what is the most constructive and productive, you know, advocacy then? Surely, in my view, it would be to uh, want to be seen as an individual um, to to then kind of uh, to to then desire a form of racialization, but essentially on your own terms can produce new forms of pain, and and that's how we're seeing it 
you know, played out where um, um, uh, an ethnic minority person, for example, that has different views to you, um, you know, reminds you of something you don't like, which is that actually there's something hollow about um, this racial identity. There's something, um, there's something not quite right about it. And so I think that's what a lot of perhaps contrarian or, or independent minded ethnic minorities that challenges thinking do remind the kind of, uh, the kind of so-called race conscious activists that this, that it's a hollow victory to kind of invert the meaning of racialization to be something positive instead of negative, um, doesn't, you know, break us from the binds of race. It, it just, um, yeah, it, it just affirms it in a, in a very, in a different way. And actually, you know, we've had uh, the these kinds of black power, black nationalism, black is beautiful movements that for in the short term can provide people with, um, yeah, a feeling of, you know, pride. But again, that's not, pride is not uh, personal development. You know, pr- pr- feeling uh, affirmed in your identity doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to uh, you know, develop economically, spiritually, mentally, psychologically, and and that's um that that's a process one has to go on as an individual again. So I think um yeah, I think one has to just ask you know, it, how is this productive? You know, is is this the kind of society that you want to live in? Um, for for not just yourself but your f- your future kids, where where race um still. Uh, defines uh, what people think, what people do, what people say. I think, um, I think when it's really when people see the or are are um, helped to see at least the kind of logical consequence of this um, thinking. I think that people t- start to question it. But unfortunately, we have a situation where whether that's the media or a lot of people talk about, you know. Um, I guess, kind of white anti-racist activists, all of the, uh, and many people in positions of power just go along with it. As many people are too scared to really um, shine a light on the kind of logical consequence of this new kind of racialization. So ultimately, yeah, I think uh, opposing racism would be to, to see people as an individual. Yeah, there is something deeply sort of tragic in that you know, like long ago, right? And this could be about race, ethnicity, religion, any kind of group that we're talking about, right? Long ago, someone built a fence, right? Someone built a fence to keep people in. And for a long time, it was the people who were outside of the fence guarding the people inside the fence and told them they couldn't leave. Mm. But now it feels across many different dimensions, right? Not just race, but I feel like in this current moment, it often is race. It's often people inside of the fence that are most fiercely guarding who can leave? And I think I think what you said earlier was so beautiful that they're afraid. I'm trying to paraphrase here that that exposing the idea of race as a fiction, of race not being something that is really a culture or inherent to oneself, but rather just a descriptor. That letting go of that could be deeply traumatizing for some people. Yes. Yeah. No, I I, th- I think it's a scary process. I think. Um, I think it is scary. I think, yeah, when you make something, when you make an identity of something, when you yeah, define yourself along these terms to, to kind of be told that actually um, maybe, yeah, maybe that's not really uh, what you think it is, um, is a traumatizing process. And I think um, in, in some senses, that's why people re- retreat into it further because from birth, literally from birth, we are encouraged, unfortunately, um, in, in many different ways to, to define ourselves along this, this, this line. And so when, when, uh, something shines a light that maybe that's not real, that there's almost a whole part of yourself that you're, 
that you've been shielding or that you're unaware of. And, and that's a very scary process. We don't live in a society at the moment, unfortunately, um, and I think that we have done in different points, but definitely not now, that sees taking risks, that sees um, taking responsibility, the kind of throwing yourself in, into, into the deep end as something that um, is encouraged. And so I think, um, yeah, I think it is very scary, but nothing worthwhile, obviously, nothing um, that really helps us is an easy process. And I think um, if we are seeking a true a deeper, more profound sense of you know, self-actualization, then I think, yeah, I think that the concept of race uh, is a barrier to that. Before we get to our final question, I just wanted to quickly follow up on that. How do we create, I'm trying to figure out a, a, a phrase here, how do we create, I suppose you could say, tribes of consent, right? Or groups of consent? Because I think that's the healthiest way forward, right? We, we don't want to create groups or tribes or um, clubs where leaving makes you an apostate, right? Mm. Um, but historically, that is pretty much the way all human beings have lived, that leaving a designated group that you were just happened to be born into by uh, the luck of birth, you could never really leave without being seen as a traitor. But how do we in this 21st century, how do we forge and how do we encourage people to form tribes of consent they can leave or join as they wish? Yeah, I think to some extent we, we were doing that when you know the, the peak of the enlightenment and the kind of and liberalism that emerged from that that was very much a kind of yeah the kind of sovereignty of the individual freedom of speech um freedom of association the kind of consent of the governed i think those principles that came to uh, define or the enlightenment in particular um were were champions of that thinking and i think um yeah i, I think that in some senses yeah we were doing that and and it was working relatively well until i think um i think there was uh, you know over particularly in the kind of 20th century um we, we started to lose faith in the ability that um liberalism can realize a better society and, and that's kind of how we've become began to kind of retreat into um these kinds of silos of, of kind of gender and, and race and all of these kinds of things so i think reconnecting um with those at the very least enlightenment values um which yeah saw human beings as as agents um sovereign agents through their rationality and, and mind capable of uh transforming themselves and the world in a profound way and I think that you can still yeah I think when you conceive of human beings in that in a much more um, deeper sense and recognize the complexity of human beings um, then you would not you you would be offended really by any attempt to uh, to kind of force people into such rigid categories you'd really be offended by it like I have a very visceral reaction when um people assume that I must think this way or speak this way or whatever and based off of just essentially my skin color so I think yeah I think it would take us to um have um to reinvigorate our faith in people and humanity um and 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 the enlightenment ideals for us to then um welcome and appreciate uh, eccentricity and, and people exploring and experimenting and not feeling obliged to uh, do anything based off of solely other people's expectations of them. So in a way, the car keys you were looking for were on the coffee table the whole time. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the answer the answer we've been looking for has been kind of baked into you know British and American culture that that traces back to the Magna Carta that idea of enlightenment the idea of the individual self being the most important unit and then that individual can then join or leave groups yeah I think that's it's interesting how we can forget the lessons of history if we if we don't re-up them um, yes. every so often that is why I feel the Equiano project is so important and the work that you're doing is so important because Every once in a while, the, the flame of individualism, right? The flame of freedom, the flame of freedom of speech, something that sometimes we here in America take for granted that is clearly not as solid um, as it should be uh, in the UK. I think it's, that's why it's so important that folks like you continue to fight for those ideals and continue to fight for those values. And it's one of the reasons that I'm very grateful to have you on the show today. Thank you. No, on this, yeah, no, I thank you again for having me. And, and yes, and I said, podcasts like this are really important but there's something that i would say though um even yes I, I very much believe in the sovereignty of the individual but i think unfortunately due to kind of the um extremism on the left um that has obviously um been rife at the moment it's almost discredited uh collective organization in any form and i do actually believe that there are forms of collective organization that are greater than the sum of their parts you know for example i think the nation state is one of those forms of collective yeah of collectivism essentially where we um yeah we, we accept kind of basic terms and work together in a kind of collaborative way that produces more positive benefits than if we were just um as individuals but again yeah i think that i think those forms of collective organization um need to um encourage uh highly socially and politically conscious individuals and i think that's the big difference between the kind of collectivism on the left which um essentially tries to remove people's ability to think for themselves you know dissent is discouraged um yeah free thinking is discouraged and i think that's a form of collective organization that diminishes um people's power whereas i think there are other forms that um that seek to raise us up and um, so, yeah, I'm not I'm not like hyper individualistic, just to clarify. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I totally understand. Collectivism is important, um, whether it's collective bargaining and unions mm. um, or coming together as a nation state. But I think importantly, and I, I believe this is, is kind of your main message, collectivism has to be truly inclusive for it to, to really work. And that means that someone who looks like you and someone who looks like me, we both need to be able to join into that collective, mm. regardless of where we were born or how we appear or what our religion may or may not be because a collectivism that is restrictive, right? That is exclusive based on tricks of birth. Isn't really collective at all. Mm, mm, mm. No, no, I agree. I think, and I think, yeah, that that's the fatal um, flaw again in race where, um, yeah, a, a kind of a collectivism that is based off of, you know, skin color or an immutable you know, characteristic is, is not one that um, will in, encourage self-actualization but but limit us significantly well and i before we get to the final question that i ask all of our guests in addition to the equiano project and uh, your your writings which can be found on on your website which i'll also include in the show notes are there any other places people can find you any other things that you'd recommend they read either by you or by someone that you admire um i think that's a good question <laughs> well yeah <laughs> yeah on my twitter you know my my ass is and i are and i think that's where um, i write little snippets of my thoughts but yeah there are so many um that's one thing as much as i criticize black lives matter and 
um, the things that have emerged. That's one thing that I will say that um, it has actually been a positive. The kind of um, it's forced in some senses. The um, it's necessitated a response, and what that has done is actually propelled many voices um, that uh, uh, were not necessarily as well known when it comes to issues of race. So that is, you know, people like. Um, Coleman Hughes and Glenn Lowry, but actually I, Aisha Kambi, she's a very good friend of mine. Um, and I think she's another British um, woman of uh, African heritage who um, has a very uh, beautiful and, and kind of a nuanced and compassionate and uh, psychological actually perspective on, um, on these issues. So yes, uh, m- there's many people and, and uh, to, to kind of affirm these, these uh, new ways of thinking on these issues. Yeah, that's really wonderfully said. Steel strengthens steel. And sometimes, you know, an infection has to enter the body for a a really robust immune response. Mm. So the final question to wrap out our chat, you know, we're limited as individuals in all sorts of ways, right? We're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy, right? Even the most well-intentioned, caring person, they can't be thinking about every person or every group of people all the time. It's impossible. So especially because of the kind of the fields you're in and kind of the, I would say to, to underplay it, the rough and tumble nature of the, the conversations that you're getting into, which can oftentimes be quite um, adversarial. Is there a group of people, political or otherwise, in your life or in the world at large right now that you'd like to take a moment and offer empathy to? I guess, you know, I, I, the people that I feel mo- really empathetic to is, is I guess, the not just the woke, but the kind of young people involved in wokeness. And I, I've kind of, I have written about this a little bit. I think, um, yeah, I think um, we do have a crisis of meaning, you know, an increase in social atomization, um, the massive changes in kind of the labor market and economic, which have increased people's kind of precariousness um, in work. And I think there are a lot of things, yeah, in, about our society that are making people feel that um, there's something not right. Um, and I think, um, yeah, wokeness essentially provides a sense of certainty, um, meaning, purpose, um, and f- fulfills that kind of idealistic as well as rebellious instincts, particularly kind of rebelling against older generations. And I think, yeah, I think um, that particular identity politics worldview can be very comforting. I think many people, James Lindsay, John McWhorter, describe it as a religion. You know, it's got many of those traits. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I, I offer sympathy because I, I, I see, I get it, you know, regardless of race, I get that kind of, that desire to realise a better society. Um, and and the sense that, you know, there isn't many people, at least, advocating for a kind of better society in a more profound way. And so, yeah, I I offer um, empathy to that sentiment. My only uh, response, though, however, is that, um, yeah, think about whether or not this is the way to to, to realise those um, those sentiments within you. Do do you feel that you can speak freely? Do you how do how how are people that disagree or criticise are treated? And these are the kinds of questions that. I guess at least help me think about whether or not I, I align or, or agree with a particular ideological worldview. Uh, and, and so, and I think there are ways to realize those feelings of a desire um, without going down this route. And I think as we spoke about today, you know, the enlightenment, um, 
universalist and, and kind of humanist ideals and, and liberalism to classical liberalism to an extent also are, are ways to affirm and, and, and um, satisfy those sentiments that I think um, the woke worldview um, is filling in some people. Anaya, thank you so much for coming on and thank you again for all of the work that you're doing that I think is of such vital importance. Thank you. Thank you.